This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and yes, I'm the Daniel and the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights. Thank you for joining me, and it's an honor, as always, to be with you here today. Greetings and a Merry Christmas and a belated Happy Hanukkah to everyone listening. I'm assuming if you're not listening, it's because you still have the covers over your head in bed, and you're hoping to catch just one more short dream before your day truly begins. Allow me to ask you to be careful out there in the world of traffic. I've seen so many awful auto collisions this past week. And if your car is wrecked, you won't be able to find a new car replacement. At least it's unlikely you'll find the model and the make you'd probably prefer. And perchance to dream you do, the sticker price shock, well, that just might kill you if the coming new higher interest rates don't. Now, if you're fortunate enough to only be an offender bender, you're going to discover it's going to be months before those parts you need to make to make your car whole. Well, they'll be working their way through the supply chain probably until Easter. Uh, I was in a three-car head-on collision about two and a half years ago. And speaking from personal experience, the ambulance ride to the emergency room isn't, isn't worth the pain. And if the ambulance ride doesn't kill you, the the attorneys that show up said they certainly will. So for all of our sakes, for heaven's sakes, please be careful out there. Okay, now, now that that's been said, I'm going to revisit the topic of abortion today. Last week I talked about abortion because it's front and center before the Supreme Court. The court heard oral arguments on December 1 of this year. How appropriate they waited until December the month of baby Jesus' birth, to hear a lawsuit about abortion. I, for one, one, am thankful that baby Jesus wasn't aborted by Mary, his mother. Fortunately, Mary was willing to pause her career long enough to carry baby Jesus until he was full term and delivered safe and sound. Of course, had she decided to abort baby Jesus, it would have been her legal right to have done so. That's if she scheduled an abortion before 24 weeks gestation. At least, this is true in New York. Now, had she lived in Mississippi, she would have had, well, she would have had to have had that abortion before 15 weeks gestation. And if she'd lived in Texas, she'd have had to have that done prior to six weeks gestation or before baby Jesus' heartbeat was at all detectable. Now, if she missed those two state legal requirement dates, she would have had to travel to a state with more generous cutoff dates. This is one of the major complaints made by the Biden administration before the Supreme Court earlier this month. Women who don't have their legal abortions prior to these cutoff dates, well, they may have to travel great distances to obtain a late-term abortion. What are all these dates about, anyway? Well, the 24-week gestational age is about viability. Democrat-controlled states, or at least their laws, declare that a baby isn't viable before 24 weeks gestation. So many abortions prior to this dateline, they're just fine with them. Those abortions 23 weeks 
and six days of gestational age, well, those aren't really babies. They aren't even human beings. Why Republican conservative states are trying to push dates back to 15 weeks and six weeks, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Babies before these hurried dates, though, they can't live outside the womb. Mississippi and Texas aren't even pretending these dates have anything to do with viability. If you're going to set a 15-week or six-week cutoff date for abortions, well, you might as well just stop abortions altogether. And you may as well repeal the Roe v. Wade contrived constitutional right of women to exercise abortion. Gosh, gosh already. Perhaps that's the whole point of these new rushed date lines in Mississippi and Texas. If you're going to roll back dates back to these pre-viability dates, why not just eliminate a a federally court-ordered abortion right and let states do their own laws? I mean, after all, state legislatures are elected positions, and and so is each state governor. Let the the people decide. There are two key issues that undergird the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court ruling. Life is defined to be viable at 23 to 24 weeks gestation. Abortion prior to this date is legal because the fetus, despite being fully formed by 12 weeks, and, and having a human heartbeat at six weeks, well, well this, this future baby is ruled unalive. In fact, a fetus is nothing more than a clump of wasted cells. Well, for me and many others, a life is a life, and playing games about viability is just ludicrous. When life begins isn't a philosophical or religious question per se. Human life is set in motion at the moment of conception. This is a long-known scientific fact. Let's say your father is in a car accident. At the hospital, the doctors place him on mechanical ventilation. Without this mechanical breathing support in these early hours of trauma, your father would not be able to breathe sufficiently to remain alive. In short, his oxygenation would plummet, his carbon dioxide, which is a poison, would skyrocket, quickly putting him in cardiac arrest and certain death. So tell me where the viability line lies. If he still needs support a week later, do we abort his medical recovery plan? Adversaries say this is a ridiculous example because your father has already been declared a human being. His breathing condition is temporary. But you say, what if it isn't? Every other bodily function is intact and working, except he can't breathe on his own. Now, if he were a fetus, he'd be ruled unviable. But then again, he's not a fetus. Okay, let's, let's take the original Roe v. Wade ruling. Fetal viability was set at 28 weeks. Prior to 28 weeks gestation, a, woman, a woman's rights meant that she could abort that fetus legally. But now a fetus at 23 weeks gestation can survive extra utero. In other words, a child born five weeks sooner than, say, some 30 years ago can survive outside the womb. In essence, we've moved from legal abortion in the beginning of the third trimester, somewhere between 27 and 40 weeks, into the second trimester, 40 to 26 weeks. This is one of the reasons the Supreme Court eliminated the pregnancy trimester criteria in 1992 when they ruled on the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. 
Did American women just lose five weeks of gestational rights because of this fact? They now have five fewer weeks to legally abort their baby? If anything, this established the fact that the 23-week gestational babies are surviving extra-utero, meaning that viability tests are totally arbitrary. Here are the facts of life. A human being is constantly undergoing physical and mental changes throughout life. Let me ask you a question. It is a newly born infant at, at any post-birth age truly viable and self-sustaining? Can a three-day-old full-term infant survive out of the womb on, on her or his own? Well, of course it's a ridiculous question. How about a one-year-old? Can a one-year-old survive alone outside of the womb? Heck, I'm convinced that while raising our three sons, that had electricity been eliminated, making microwaves unworkable, all three of them would have eventually starved to death had they been left on their own at that point. <laughs> the, the entire fantasy that there's some magic viability line that reasonably declares what life begins is, and is entitled to, to all the same constitutional rights and privileges as adults is unquestionably contrived. So the real argument far-left pro-choice advocates continue to make both in the court and across the liberal news and opinion media platforms, is that a reasonable date must be set by which women can reasonably discover they're pregnant and make plans to finance, schedule, and travel for an abortion. Conservative states are pushing to have abortion law return to the states and let state voters decide on abortion. If pro-choice, with all their control over the media, corporate sponsors, and leading lawmakers, believe this is a national issue and not a state prerogative, then have Congress pass a constitutional amendment and have the president sign it and send it along to the 50 United States and, and see just how united the states are on this issue. This is the democratic way, and if anyone has declared there for democracy, it's the Biden administration. Heck, they just held an international Zoom conference on democracy. Now, to my way of thinking, states controlling such laws or having the Constitution amend itself through a congressional action is far superior to, to, as, as opposed to unraveling the Gordian knot that having the Supreme Court take a hatchet to the Constitution and splice a, a new constitutional right where there was none before isn't very workable. And as I've said, the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, was based on two key factors. The first was the right to privacy. Now, this is a complicated legal argument, and I'll defer discussion of something called substantive due process as a right used by the court to decide abortion is a private matter and that the state has limited say on what a woman can do with her body. And of course, they don't make these arguments when it comes to mandating vaccines, I know. But as a pro-life advocate, I'm concerned about the baby. I mean, who speaks for the baby? Now, I'm not talking about the exceptions like everyone wants to jump to when we talk about abortion. Rape, incest, and the woman's health are rarely the circumstances abortion revolves around. And are you telling me I had no right to be born? 
I had no right to life before 32 weeks when I was born in 1949. That was the approximate date of viability in 1949. Yes, viability was the second factor of the Roe v. Wade case. Yes, there are a few other factors, but these two dominated. I say, send the decision on abortion back to the states and let the people decide. Well, back to baby Jesus. If Holy Mother Mary of God traveled with fetus baby Jesus and soon-to-be Father Joseph, her husband, if they were willing to travel to Bethlehem to pay their taxes and be counted, they certainly could have traveled somewhere else to get an abortion, had they needed to. Now, for the next few moments, I ask the indulgence of my non-Christian listeners so that I can read parts of the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke about the birth of baby Jesus. According to the Gospel of Luke, in his written words, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed and counted, everyone into his own city to register. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed and counted with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And the shepherds, living out in the fields nearby, kept watching over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So in short, Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem is undertaken in order to satisfy an imperial command that all individuals return to their ancestral towns that all the world should be taxed and counted. Now, since Mary was pregnant with baby Jesus at the time, this command had to be carried out. And this explains why baby Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem and not in the town where his parents lived. Now, what divine irony. The founding story of the Christian religion is linked to the imperial taxation policy and census-taking of the Roman Empire. Can you imagine the outcry there'd be if the very anti-Christian federal government tried to change the taxes due date from April 15th to December 25th. <laughs> wow, that would be something. Now, I, I don't mean to be a spoiler, but historians, those pesky historians, they, they note there's no historical record of Emperor Augustus ever giving such an order, and that Cyrenus was not the governor of Syria at the time 
that this birth was supposed to have taken place, and that there were insurmountable logistical problems if everybody in Rome had to travel to their ancestral towns in order to be accounted for and to pay their taxes. Nevertheless, like so much in the New and Old Testaments, allegorical and metaphysical stories abound. The critical fact is that baby Jesus was born, and thank heaven, Mother Mary, to the best of our knowledge, never had a single thought of aborting her child. Now, as I said last week, I'm a recovering Catholic, and as such, while I consider myself spiritually attuned, I am not a deeply religious fellow. Nevertheless, the story of baby Jesus' birth is apropos to our discussion about abortion in America today. Do we ever really know who we're dispatching by abortion? Of course, the counter-arguments are that many criminals and killers are just as likely aborted as there are future saints. If only Hitler, Lenin, and Stalin had never, never come to be born, somewhere between 130 and 150 million people would not have perished, many of them in horrible ways. Now, as you know, the Biden administration is strongly pro-choice. Joe sent the administration's solicitor general to argue against the court allowing Mississippi law to stand. Uh, She also took a very definite stand against the total repeal of the Roe v. Wade court-invented women's constitutional right to an abortion. So this week's newsflash should, should come as no surprise. What newsflash? You say, well, thank you for asking. Well, first let me say the Biden administration has politicized every public health institution under their control, and this most certainly includes the Food and Drug Administration, or as we call it, the FDA. Now, the FDA oversees all pharmaceutical licenses, including approvals and drug restrictions. The FDA just erased restrictions on at-home drug-induced abortions by allowing women and girls, and I emphasize girls, to end their pregnancies via mail-order pills without having to see an abortion provider in person. Yeah, really. Now, Now, here's some background. Earlier this year, the FDA had already erased restrictions on the requirement of in-person assessment for drug-induced abortion due to the coronavirus pandemic. Isn't everything with the Biden administration about the coronavirus pandemic? Medication abortion has been available in the United States uh, since 2000, and it accounts for about 40% of all terminated pregnancies. Now, in, in May of 2020, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and other pro-choice organizations filed a federal lawsuit challenging the FDA's restriction, in part citing the need to avoid unnecessary travel and exposure due to COVID-19. The FDA was court-ordered to ease these restrictions in July of 2020 because of COVID-19. Again, these decisions came from courts friendly to pro-choice Democrats. But the Trump administration challenged the change, and the Supreme Court reinstated the regulation. So what were the regulations? Well, it's easier to tell you what the new FDA regulations are now. Patients first get an online health screening review, and then they receive an online prescription for medication through their 
telehealth visit with a clinician by a laptop, phone, or some other electronic device. They then can opt to have the abortion pills shipped directly to their address, eliminating the need to visit a bricks-and-mortar healthcare facility to terminate their pregnancy. In other words, they never have to have physical contact with a physician or other healthcare practitioner. The entire abortion process can be handled over the internet. Oh my gosh, what a modern day! <laughs> what a modern day this is. Just like a telehealth visit for a, for the common cold, you know. Of course, this process is open to widespread fraud and illegal distribution of abortion pills, but. Planned Parenthood, about Planned Parenthood, they they believe they've they've just won the lottery, and they have. This allows them to reduce their physical plant overhead, while speeding up consultations. I mean, heck, a physician can triple the number of daily consultations via telehealth. So, uh, let's let's really just call this what it is. It's a teleabortion. Now, let's talk about the pills and the procedure. And I apologize in advance if you're eating breakfast. You may wish to tune down for just a minute. Ready? Here we go. The pill combo consists of two medications. The first drug, mifeprestin, blocks the action of progesterone, which the mother's body produces to nourish the pregnancy, which is a nice way of saying the growing baby. Now, when progesterone is blocked, the lining of the mother's uterus deteriorates and the blood and nourishment are cut off to the developing baby, who then dies inside the mother's womb. Until the FDA's policy change, mifeprestin had to be dispensed at the hospital, clinic, or the medical office. Now, after the first pill, about 24 hours later, the uh, pregnant woman takes a second medication called misoprestol that then causes severe contractions and bleeding to expel the baby from the mother's uterus. This drug is typically administered by the patient at home and has been long, a long time available at pharmacies with a prescription. Naturally, any healthcare practitioner can perform a perfunctory healthcare screening via telemedicine. I, I, many of us have already done that for other kinds of things. Supposedly, these screenings are to determine any medical issues that the, this would-be mother might have and how far along her pregnancy is, since a medication abortion is only permitted in early pregnancy. But, but there's, there isn't any way to confirm how far along a pregnancy actually is over the Internet. Nor can you perform an ultrasound screening via telemedicine from the comfort of your home. Well, well most, most of us can't. So you can throw out all those state viability uh, datelines. Of course, there's there's been an immediate outcry from pro-life advocates. One writes that all the warnings about SCOTUS overturning Roe in causing back alley abortions, it is ironic that it's actually the FDA creating dangerous back alley situations for women with their decision to allow abortion by mail. This is a terrible anti-woman policy by the Biden administration. Now, the reason this person posted this uh, on Twitter is because a study published in November by the Charlotte Lozer Institute, which is the research arm of the Susan B. Anthony list, found that drug-induced abortion is consistently and progressively associated with more 
post-abortion emergency room visit morbidity than surgical abortions. This study determined chemical abortion, in other words, pill-induced abortion visits, that those rates increased to the ER by 507% between 2002 and 2015, the same period of time during which the surgical abortion visit rate to ERs went up 315%. But, but you never hear about the risk still posed by abortion to women's health care. But pro-choice advocates look to justify abortion as a necessary aid to ensure women's health care. Of, of course, these arguments say nothing about the possibility of the baby's health. Uh, thank you, Captain Obvious. That's because the entire process is about destroying that baby and expelling him or her from the warmth and nourishment of the womb. Okay, you've discovered I have a bias. Like the majority of Americans, I do believe abortion has a place in our society, but not the way we currently practice or adjudicate it. Curiously, Dr. Colleen McNichols, Chief Medical Officer for Reproductive Health Services of Planned Parenthood in St. Louis, said, We really, we, we really strongly feel folks should have the abortion experience that they want. And that can mean a number of different things. So, so now abortion is touted as an experience? Is this like space travel an experience? Nevertheless, 32 states require clinicians who administer medication abortion to be physicians. Two states prohibit the use of medication abortion starting at a specific point in the pregnancy. Well, 19 states require the clinician providing a medication abortion to be physically present when the medication is administered, thereby prohibiting the use of telemedicine to prescribe medication for abortion. Doubtless, pro-choice will continue to attack restrictive state laws. But with prescriptions via the Internet, the challenge for states regulating abortion pills are many, many more times the challenge than regulating in-clinic visits, and on-site administration of chemical abortions. Additionally, in Mexico, these medications are readily available over-the-counter, making their distribution in America via Mexican cartels all the easier. Just another side benefit of Joe Biden's open-border policies. Ironically, this new development undercuts the Biden administration's argument before the Supreme Court that if they allow the Mississippi state abortion law to stand, women will have to travel greater distances to find an abortion provider in another state. Not so. Not any longer. Well, the time is flying by, and there's so much more to say. Let's take a quick break. Hit the closest restroom. Hit the fridge. Come right back. You're going to want to hear the rest of the abortion updates and some really interesting coronavirus information I'm sure you haven't heard before. Join me again in minutes. Make that seconds. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11 a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. 
go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. I'm excited to talk about a new product from HealthyCell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Frankly Daniels Show. Before the break, we were discussing the FDA's new approval for abortion clinics to prescribe FDA-approved abortion pills directly to clients over the Internet so that these chemical agents can be delivered right to the client's home for her own self-administration. Now, this process completely circumvents the requirement that clients appear in person at an abortion clinic for an examination and then to be observed for the first part of a two-pill regimen. Now, while state laws are going to still apply to abortion limitations uh, for this new procedure, ensuring those seeking abortion and those dispensing abortion pills, ensuring they follow state law, is going to be infinitely, infinitely more complicated, if, if, if not impractical. The new ruling is also a huge gift to Planned Parenthood. One Planned Parenthood clinic in Mississippi can handle thousands upon thousands of yearly online abortion consultations. The, the question becomes if the state of Mississippi has the emergency room and hospital capacity to handle all the at-home abortions that go wrong. Now, Planned Parenthood isn't equipped to handle distance emergencies. In addition to all of this, against most of our wills, our federal government still subsidizes Planned Parenthood to the tune of over $500 million each year, more than a half a, half a billion. 
And now supposedly these funds are for Medicaid visits and contraception. You'd think with all that contraception, there wouldn't be anybody needing abortions. But Planned Parenthood has, it really has consistently refused to open their financials to prove they don't intermingle these federal funds to support their abortion side business. Well, before pursuing our talk uh, about any more abortion, I'd, I'd like to share some more immediate issues of note with you. Uh, to, to begin with, uh, let me share with you a George Orwell quote. 1984, you remember, he was the guy that wrote 1984. George Orwell quote that fell upon me this week. It reads, All tyrannies rule through fraud and force, but once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. Once again, all tyrannies rule through fraud and force, but once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. How very true this statement is about the reign of the Biden administration and Democrat governors as they punish Americans while pretending they're saving us from COVID-19 and its numerous variants. How disingenuous they are by ordering us to follow the science. The science they're talking about isn't the medical or physical sciences. Instead, it's It's their political science. It's about the science of using fear to control the American agenda. Our elected leadership is terrorizing Americans. Yes, Americans in America, in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Millions of people have been destroyed by employment vaccine mandates, most certainly those in government jobs. This includes millions of healthcare professionals, nurses, respiratory therapists, laboratory technologists, first responders, firefighters, paramedics, and even physicians. And the most likely groups to refuse the COVID-19 vaccine mandates are women, black Americans, and mothers. Yes, mothers are obviously women, but they have a, a very different focus, that being their children, who've been harmed by scientifically unsupported mask mandates. And why all the contested pushback, you ask? Isn't the actual science of COVID-19 clear? (laughs) No, it isn't. Americans don't trust Joe Biden, Dr. Fauci, nor Rochelle Walensky for straight-up information about anything COVID-19 related, especially the lies about wearing masks and putting an experimental vaccine in their young bodies and those of their children. Joe Biden, Joe Biden just said this week that, that Americans have to get vaccinated and boosted to stop the spread of COVID-19. He said if you're vaccinated, you're doing your patriotic duty to stop the spread of COVID. What baloney. Even tiny tyrant Fauci and clueless Dr. Walensky, they have just said that vaccines uh, no longer stop the spread of the virus, if they ever really did. Too many breakthrough infections. Someone please tell Joe... Have you noticed that when we hear about COVID-19 clinical studies, the majority of them come from foreign countries, especially Israel? Now, as a healthcare management and policy researcher, I know good studies are good studies wherever they're done. I'm thankful for these studies. You can't imagine what we wouldn't know without foreigners doing much of the needed research on COVID-19. But I have to ask, Where are all the studies on COVID-19 done by the National Institutes of Health, especially Dr. Fauci's National Institute of 
allergy and infectious disease studies. This is supposed to be his area of expertise. And how about Dr. Rochelle Walitsky, Center for Disease Control Director? Where are her COVID-19 studies? I mean, where are they? Have you ever noticed that when all these science kings and queens make pronouncements and issue mandates about face masks, they never, ever, I mean, not once have they ever cited a study that quantifies exactly how much protection wearing a simple surgical mask gives someone. Now, this, of course, assumes that every time you put on one of these disposable masks, it's a, it's a new one, a fresh one, and not the same one you wore yesterday and perhaps even the day before. If you're wearing your favorite cloth mask from Amazon, uh, do you wash it regularly or more than once a month, let's, let's say? Uh, surgical masks, you know, are worn in surgery to prevent surgeons or nurses from coughing and sneezing directly into a surgical field. They don't filter viruses. If in practice they did save us from COVID-19, where's the evidence? You know, the CDC and the NIH have had two years to study face mask efficiency and effectiveness against the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. But have you heard of such a study? When they appear on television, which seems like every other hour, do they start by saying, wear your face mask because it blocks 60 or 70% of viral transmission? No, they don't. They don't dare say anything about face mask efficiency or effectiveness. This is what you call willful ignorance. If we don't study it, we don't have to report any bad results to people. The truth is, is Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky haven't spent a dime of billions upon billions of dollars on a well-designed face mask study for blocking COVID-19. They don't want to know. And that's a theme that you're going to hear over and over. They don't really want to know. If they did a well-designed and controlled study, they'd already know what the results would show. They have a pretty good idea already. And if they released those results, no one would ever wear a face mask for COVID-19 or any of its sure-to-come myriad of variants. When you marry up these results with the fact that kids don't suffer from COVID-19 and are very, very poor spreaders of the disease, well, let's just say there'd be a mob of angry parents at school board meetings demanding maskless classrooms. And just as soon as that happens, Biden's FBI would leap from all the vehicles parked outside the school board meetings to arrest parent terrorists. As far as I'm concerned, the Biden administration are the terrorists. All tyrannies rule through fraud and force. But once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. The fraud of face masks for COVID-19 is being exposed and will continue to be. But the government controls most of the media and thus most of the information flow. Jen Psaki has already told us that the White House conspires with social media that take down any information that doesn't conform to the lies they enjoy telling us. And they have no intention to come out and say masks, like social distancing, and cleaning your Instacart or Amazon deliveries with Clorox wipes is a fraud. Socrates said, Awareness of ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. Here with the Biden administration, it's more like awareness of propaganda is the beginning of wisdom.
So let's grab some wisdom by exposing some propaganda. I think you'll find this next series of clips of an exchange between Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana as he questions Dr. Rochelle Olinsky, the CDC director. You're going to find these, I think, very instructive. This exchange took place a couple of weeks ago during a Senate Oversight Committee hearing on COVID-19. Now, as you probably know, there's, there's a mountain of controversy over why the CDC and Dr. Fauci are demanding people who've had a verifiable case of COVID-19, either the original Alpha strain or the recent Delta variant, why these people have to go through all three COVID-19 vaccination shots, the original two-shot sequential combination, and then after six months, a booster shot. The point being that scores of well-done foreign research and also major studies by the Cleveland Clinic and other U.S. academic medical centers, they show that people who've recovered, truly recovered from a COVID-19 infection, have durable T and B cell immunity, also known as naturally acquired immunity. Even more importantly, their immune response to reinfection is 26 times better than any one of the vaccines currently available, and this protection is likely a lifelong immunity. The problem with vaccinating people with naturally acquired immunity is that there are a lot of nasty side effects. Now, none of this is necessary, and and the NIH and CDC mandates, they put these people at at heightened risk of reaction to, to the vaccine. The point is these people have nearly nuclear type of uh, immunity. When you poke them with a COVID-19 vaccine, their system goes nuts. It's as if COVID-19 is attacking. Now, if you've gone ahead and received the booster shot yourself, you may have experienced a similar but far less reactive experience. Many of us had little problem with the first two shots, but the booster definitely produced fever, aches, pains, and chills. And as if this onerous and health-threatening side effects aren't enough. People who've had COVID-19 and have decided not to get one of the vaccines, they're considered by the CDC and every blue state and city government to be among the unvaccinated with all the harassment that comes with this public stigma and shunning and, and negative employment consequences. Okay, so I know you haven't heard the clips I'm about to play because no one is really as obsessive compulsive as me when it comes to listening to congressional uh, testimony. Instead of Senator Cassidy in these clips, who is also a medical physician, by the way, instead of him asking Dr. Walensky why they haven't studied natural acquired immunity, he proposes a study and asks why the CDC couldn't conduct it now. And he's asking why. With all the millions upon millions of electronic medical records, and you'll hear him ask about EMRs, electronic medical records, EMRs. That's an acronym for electronic medical records. He's asking why the CDC can't use this data to research the question as to whether naturally acquired immunity is durable and effective against reinfection with COVID-19. I've learned that there is a cohort of people that we know have been previously infected. We've got the bench research showing that the uh, triad of antibodies, T cells, and B cells are there. 
and that 92% of them are still there at age at six months out. So why don't we, why have we not done the research showing that natural immunity confers protection against recurrent infection? You heard him ask, why have we not done the research showing that natural immunity confers protection? Now, Dr. Walensky responds. Um, first of all, let me just reiterate that our current stand after reviewing 96 papers and a scientific brief on this issue is that everyone who's been previously infected should be vaccinated. 96 papers. 96 papers. It's like 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Pass one down. You know how that goes. Still, the CDC says it doesn't care what other researchers have found. She just said, uh, we've reviewed 96 papers, and she says... She doesn't say what she's, they found in these studies. She simply says the CDC's position is that people with prior COVID infections must still get vaccinated. But she didn't say anything about what the 96 papers said. Now, Dr. Walensky would lead you to believe that the studies the CDC review agree with the CDC's position on vaccines. Well, they don't. L- listen to this clip again. Um, First of all, let me just reiterate that our current stand after reviewing 96 papers and a scientific brief on this issue is that everyone who's been previously infected should be vaccinated. Next, Dr. Walensky goes on to state all the problems with retrospective studies. These are studies that look at patients after they've had COVID and test to see if they have T-cell immunity to COVID-19. She begins to rattle off why these past studies are worthless And then Senator Dr. Cassidy says, "Uh, that's not my question. And she says she knows this, and then she continues along the same same vein and the same baloney. Uh, Take a listen. But that's um, not my question. Right, agreed. So, so, and part of the challenge here is, as you know, the infection-induced immunity and the biases associated with retrospectively looking at the data. Several of those papers that we reviewed for that brief have demonstrated that the kind of disease that you had at the time you had it matters. Um, this next clip is really quite interesting. Older Can I person? stop you for a second? Where are you? We could do this prospectively. Because you know who is actually, apparently, I'm told you've got patient-identifiable data, and you would be able to say, okay, six months ago, we're going to start everybody infected within the last six months and be able to follow their EHR prospectively to see this. I mean, theoretically, CDC has the ability to do this right now. In this clip, Cassidy throws her off and says, instead of a retrospective study, why don't we just do a a prospective study? Uh, You have tons of data electronic health records, you could start right now. Well, I won't belabor the next five minutes of back and forth between the two. (laughs) But here's the bottom line from Senator Dr. Cassidy. That natural immunity confers protection against future infection. It's because we've decided not to look. Dr. Cassidy was very diplomatic and said, it's because we have decided not to look. No, Senator Cassidy. It's because the CDC nor the NIH has any any interest at all in looking. If they did conduct the study, the fraud would be exposed, leaving the government, who never says they're sorry. Can you imagine them saying, we've been lying to you these past 18 months. If you had COVID, uh, you do have immunity, and you really don't need to be vaccinated. And we've been... That we've been fibbing about the face masks too. Now, they probably don't work, but we thought some of you would feel better wearing them, uh, thinking that you're doing something to protect yourself and others. Like, like President Joe Biden says, 
It's the patriotic thing to do, right? All of this is, of course, by Dr. Fauci's command. Not only is he a highest paid federal worker, he's also the most powerful autocrat. There's so much more evidence that's wrong, it's not even close. And if you listen to the physician senators talk about natural immunity and masks and the papers they've reviewed, you'll come to understand that this lie is equal to all the other others that the Biden administration is telling us about COVID-19. Yes, people, adults, especially the elderly and health-compromised elderly adults, you should talk with your physician and, and get vaccinated if so directed. But there are some 120 million Americans who've recovered from bona fide cases of COVID. And when you add those to those already truly vaccinated and boosted, there aren't many people left. And the majority of those left are between the ages of 5 and 11. And now you see them coming after these kids, and soon tiny tyrant Fauci will be coming after those six months of age and up. You know, by the time Joe Biden gets around to running for president again, everyone could be having anywhere from eight to nine uh, shots of, 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 of COVID vaccine. I mean, th this is going to be crazy. Soon we'll be, every, every six months we'll be getting a shot. It's, it's worse than the flu. This is just two lies, natural immunity and face masks. Let me ask you a question, and this, this is the serious question. Don't you, don't you get angry when you find out, and, and you eventually do find out, that someone you trust has been purposely lying to you? And, and I don't mean those, uh, those little white lies meant to spare you from uh, embarrassments or to keep you from a hurtful truth. I mean a lie that tops all lies. And, and worse than that, a lie a person insists on telling even after the truth of the matter has been exposed. And you know that this lie is just that. It's a lie. Uh, I want to play for you an audio clip from the Democrat National Committee's Christmas party in Washington, D.C., held earlier this week. You'll, you'll recognize the speaker. Here's the clip. Our country could not be more, could not be better served than with this most experienced, capable hands than yours, President Biden. He's just perfect. The timing couldn't be better. And Madam Vice President, we're inspired by your work for the people as you continue to be an invaluable partner to President Biden. In this uh, Christmas season, I dare say only God is perfect, Nancy. Let me go one place further, maybe two places further. Joe Biden may be the most imperfect president this nation has ever suffered under. And Kamala Harris, please, she's even further behind. But what else would you expect any, uh, anybody like Nancy Pelosi to say in front of 400 Democrat donors? Uh, you probably already know this by now, but the Democrats aren't going to seriously chase their Build Back Biden bill uh, this year. They've given up on it this year. In fact, they're switching focus and gearing up to try to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act of 2022 now. This 840-page bill would put Democrats in control of all aspects of government for the rest of what will no longer be called America. Listen to Pelosi start her pitch. I always say when you get in the arena, you have to be prepared to take a punch. 
You also have to be prepared to throw a punch for the children. This is very important because it's not just about policy. It's not about politics only. It's about patriotism. It's about our country. It's about our democracy being on the line. And, and we have to work very hard. I said to the members, are you all making a decision to win the election? If so, we have to make every decision in favor of winning the election. We have to do everything we can in our power to save our democracy. And it isn't, I just, I just want to tell you this one thing. This president, he, he orchestrated a bipartisan infrastructure bill with this great, which is great. But what he said, too, was, I cannot confine my vision for America to only what is in that bill. We must build back better. For the children, really, Nancy? Not about politics or policies? It's about saving democracy? Really, Nancy? We're going to need everyone listening today to do their part to ensure these people are out of power come January 1, 2023. Now, Here's a second serious question for you. Can you name any aspect of your family life? Any aspect at all that government doesn't have its hand in? We even have FBI agents tracking parents who attend school board meetings. We have Biden's ICE agents, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. These agents flying unaccompanied illegal alien children into states and dropping them off without informing any state or local agency. So what you say? Well, the next week, your child's sixth grade class has eight more students that weren't there last week, and your tax dollars are paying for them. And even more irritating is that the teacher who's already overworked, hardly able to handle her class of 22 or 24, she, she's even less able now to help your child because the class has grown by eight students. I challenge you to think about all the new places the federal government has inserted itself in just 12 months. Every time you go to the grocery store, you're paying more. That's the government. Did you do anything to upset the supply chain, except what which you usually purchase? Joe Biden and Democrats mandated vaccines, pushed millions of supply chain workers out of a job. And now, after they've done immense damage, the federal courts are finally getting around to telling Joe he's breaking the law, and he can't mandate vaccines, and he can't uh, just let anybody walk across the border. They've got to go back to Mexico. As a practitioner, as a teacher, as a student of public health policy, I've never in my wildest dreams thought public health policy would be used by politicians, much less uh, making hack politicians out of medical and public health leaders, college and university presidents, and blue states governors. Their lust for power to control the American citizen has taken them to the point of crushing the careers and family livelihoods of millions of us. Allow me to stroll you down Liar's Lane and share with you some of the worst lies ever told the American people by one president and his administration. The United States will not undertake a hasty or disorderly withdrawal from Afghanistan. We are committed to a responsible and sustainable end to this war while preventing Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for terrorist groups. We seek to bring a responsible end uh, to the conflict, to remove our troops from, from harm's way, uh, and uh, to ensure that Afghanistan can never again become a haven 
uh, for terrorists that would threaten the United States. General Miller and General McKenzie will be able to do so in a safe, orderly and effective way. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. They will do it safely. They will do it orderly and they will do it deliberately and they will do it in lockstep with our allies. Uh, we plan to retain uh, an embassy uh, on the ground of Kabul and uh, on the ground in Kabul. We're not withdrawing. We're staying. Uh, the embassy is staying. Our programs are staying. If there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. Um, I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. I met with uh, the Afghan government here in, in the White House, in the Oval. I think they have the capacity to be able to sustain the government. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. What we've allowed these political hacks to do to Americans, on top of the devastation of the virus, a virus created and released with our gain-of-function financial help, this will all be written in scarlet ink in tomorrow's history books. Remember, all tyrannies rule through fraud and force. But once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. Join me next week as we take another bite out of the fraud and confront evil forces. I do believe it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Until we meet again, thank you for listening, and God bless all. Thank you.